Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Thomas Barnett, who more than uh, 20 years ago wrote the groundbreaking essay, The Pentagon's New Map in Esquire magazine. That became his 2004 book of the same name. He's now got a new book out that is no less thought-provoking, America's New Map, that touches on the challenge America faces over the coming decades, from climate change to economic and industrial factors to demographics, and primarily the global competition between its model uh, and those of China and Russia. He also strongly encourages taking cues from history, including our own, that can help shape a more secure future. Uh, Thomas, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolutely thought-provoking book. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Uh, it is a pleasure. Before we get started, our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, the late great Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Thomas, great to uh, have you on. And again, a thought-provoking uh, uh, work. And whether or not folks agree or disagree with some of your uh, prognosis. You have a very disciplined model that uh, some of us uh, recognize from when you wrote uh, the Pentagon's new map of how it is you sort of frame what the issues, the challenges, and the solutions are, because you like to you know, ground all of these things in, strangely enough, fact, uh, as well as uh, in history and, and what actually you know, the trend lines are. What's the process you use to basically frame the arguments the, that you were going to make in this book? Well, the first thing I do is avoid seeing a kind of superpower conflict as the driving structural uh, change agent in the system. And instead, I try to focus on what I consider to be inevitabilities, uh, things that are already baked into the system. So I tend to focus on things like investment. I tend to focus on things like demographics, uh, climate change, those sorts of elements. I look at how they're going to collide over the course of the next, say, 30, 40, 50 years. And then I ask myself and ultimately the reader to consider uh, some uh, adaptations and strategies that from today's perspective would seem inconceivable, but which uh, moving down the pathway that I'm describing here are going to be anything but inconceivable. And in many instances, uh, downright required. So it's it's all about kind of loosening your mind about your assumptions of the future, uh, right. grounding them in very strong, empirically uh, derived observations of trends, and then saying, understanding those trends unfolding, what are going to be some of the responses that we can conceivably pursue? Um, you know, you have uh, some 40 uh, themes or, or trend lines that you say uh, in the book. Uh, some of these are driven by uh, climate, uh, some uh, that then exacerbates north-south dynamics in a world, uh, you know, that has a tendency of thinking of east-west uh, dynamics. From your standpoint, you know, walk the audience through what those powerful through lines are that are going to be shaping the security environment over the coming decades. Because, you know, we have a tendency of sort of thinking of these as military solutions, but or military problems, as opposed to actually tectonic global challenges that are well beyond sort of, you, you know, the you know what I mean? If 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 all your problems uh, are are nails, your only solution is the hammer. Or right, if you only have a hammer, every solution is a nail. Anyway, the story starts really with the end of the Second World War and America's decision to uh, model uh, a global system on its own internal system of how states have united and economically integrated over time. We're enormously successful in spreading this model, this international liberal rule set such that by the end of the century, we've integrated uh, most of the world's economies and we've generated something that was considered inconceivable throughout most of history, and that is a majority global middle class. 
But with that tremendous acceleration of human consumption and production and activity, uh, we triggered this immense structural change called uh, climate change, which is going to impact the lower latitudes a lot more profoundly than the uh, upper latitudes. So that forces kind of a north-south integration dynamic that's mirrored along demographic lines because to join the global economy is to undergo a demographic transition traditionally, take advantage of a demographic dividend, that concentration of workers relative to dependents. And we've seen that work time and time again, most recently with China, and we're going to see it unfold in the next 15 to 20 years with India. That also creates north-south disparities. Uh, and then the third thing, the structural change that I've already mentioned, that growth and emergence of a majority global middle class that's increasingly non-Western, uh, non-Northern in its orientation. So very much aligned with this uh, North-South perspective in the sense that it's located in the Global South so that to the extent Northern powers want to access uh, uh, future growth potential, they also have to move in a North-South integrating manner. So three huge structural changes that we identify here, climate change, North-South integration impetus, demographic disparity, aging North, still fertile South. And then the fact that the global majority middle class has migrated, uh, so to speak, more towards the global South and from the global North, all three of these things come together to take a system that has been East-West in its orientation for decades, even centuries, and forces a North-South perspective that to me is the great international relations dynamic of the 21st century. Um, you noted uh, that the American rules-based order after World War II, um, you know, did lead to probably the greatest period of prosperity, uh, yeah. of growth, and also of stability. Uh, you yes. make a terrific argument that the, the nations that end up becoming security problems are those that are actually not within the globalized order, and yet right and left uh, have been attacking uh, globalization as uh, the villain, while not fully understanding that actually everybody's quality of life has has improved because of globalization, even if it's caused hardship, or even if it needs, as you said, maybe smarter regulation, maybe better implementation. What is it that we've got to do to preserve this order? Um, I'll get to China in, in a minute, because some people, I think, wrongfully point at China operating outside the system. It was in everybody's financial advantage, actually, for, for a while to do that. What is it we need to remember? And what is it we need to be doing to not actually dynamite a system that will still be very relevant and still be very important for, for decades, if not centuries to come? Well, I would say America you know, took it upon itself to be sort of uh, the market maker when it comes to the global economy and not just a market player. And, and we, we assumed that kind of benevolent hegemony over the system uh, for decades. And on that basis, we encouraged the resurrection of Europe as a global demand manufacturing hub. And then after that, we focused on Asia in the last 30, 40 years and led to the emergence of a risen economic series of powers there, something that's never been achieved in Asia's history to have that kind of multipolarity and that amount of wealth creation and prosperity uh, expansion. So we've done what we set out to do, which was to eliminate the potential of world wars across the Eurasian landmass. Uh, that has been accomplished by integrating those economies, I would argue, and by the careful uh, use of, of uh, nuclear weapons uh, in terms of a balancing uh, uh, element throughout the system, basically ruling out great power war for the last eight de decades. Uh, does that eliminate uh, superpowers exerting themselves around the planet? No. The fact that we have a multipolar system now means that all those major players seek to revise the rule sets that we have set in motion these last seven, eight decades. But none of them, I would argue, are interested in bringing down the international system. They're interested in tilting the rules in their direction. And we see that most prominently with China now. So 
I'm not saying that we need to play that market role, that market making role to the same extent now that we did in the past. I think the great challenge that we face is kind of migrating off that concern and re-embracing a sense of uh, superpower competition with the other risen powers of the system that we facilitated these past decades right. to include China and India most prominently. Uh, and it's all about not demonizing our creation at this point and just kind of resurrecting a more competitive mindset as we interact with these other powers. Do you note that every nation that's actually particularly dangerous are those that are outside the globalized system? And you use Russia as an example. And indeed, Russia's actions have even further marginalized it from, from the, the globalized system. Uh, make your case, because it's actually quite an empirical case. Well, historically, um, where we sent U.S. military forces since the end of the Cold War have been to parts of the world that were less connected to the global economy or parts of the world, countries uh, within the world system who have uh, or are experiencing an embrace of globalization at a rather high velocity because globalization comes in, tends to challenge traditional authority very dramatically, uh, and it leads initially to instabilities. Uh, because of the profound social changes that it tends to impose on nations. Uh, when you're outside the system, uh, you're more desperate uh, in terms of your desire to join the system or to, to attract a certain amount of uh, antipathy from the uh, powers that be, because that's your model of state control, like a North Korea. Uh, we've seen Russia try to integrate uh, across the 1990s, uh, failed to do so, except in a very narrow sense with a resource, uh, natural resource exports. And then we saw the resurrection of Russian revanchism these last 20 years under Putin. And so we've seen them kind of resort back to the model they had throughout their czarist right. history, which is to take hostages along its vast border and try to uh, keep a certain coherence to its sense of empire along those lines. It's a very 19th century approach. Uh, the, uh, the the gamble they took that Putin took with Ukraine in 2022 uh, created such a backlash across the advanced West and the global economy in general that we've seen Russia fairly deglobalized on that basis and now really put on the path towards uh, economic vassalization uh, at the hands of the Chinese, such that uh, I think China's uh, uh, control over the Russians right now is probably at its maximum. Um, let me uh, take you to China. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I should uh, note to the audience, you taught in China uh, for, I think, three years before returning uh, to uh, the United States. You have a measured and accurate sense of the menacing nature of, of what is an authoritarian uh, state. Uh, at the same time, it is a successful state in part because it's a hybrid of, of capitalism uh, and a planned economy. Uh, I mean, we'll see what the economic challenges hold and she's miscalculation by some that he thought more authoritarianism will actually uh, increase economic growth, which, which might not actually be the case. P putting all of that aside, there's a sense now uh, that uh, we really screwed China up, um, you know, and we managed to get it wrong. Whereas actually for a while, we sort of got it right. They were changing. Uh, and it's only in the last decade or so that things uh, have gotten particularly problematic, even if the plan all along was trying to supplant the United States and China wouldn't be the first time uh, one power has tried to succeed another power, even if the US-UK uh, transfer was, was a, a peaceful one. What are we... What did we get right in the last five or so decades, Thomas? What did we get wrong? And what is it that we need to be doing differently going into the future? Because whether we like it or not, China is going to be a powerful force. And the, the era of the United States being the overwhelming, towering power uh, are over. Well, first off, I, re I really don't care the kind of right and wrong questioning on this subject. Um, I, I, th I think it betrays a certain arrogance on our part that uh, somehow we could get China right or wrong or we're responsible for China uh, emerging a certain way or another way. We set in motion 
the potential for their peaceful economic rise through a transaction strategy that we had already used on the Asian tigers and before that, the Japanese, and, and before that, really, the uh, remnants of, of, of Europe after the Second World War. We encouraged their export-driven growth. Uh, we opened our markets up to their exports progressively. Uh, the implied transaction there was that they would take their trade surpluses, plow them back into our debt markets, allow us to maintain a super consumption level and to have a big military that allowed us to play kind of Leviathan across the world, which in turn encouraged further their peaceful economic rise. Uh, China has risen uh, very peacefully. Uh, the fact that it's risen uh, is a huge uh, tipping point in in the development of the global economy. We go from just a West to a true global economy when China marketizes, but the Chinese are still Chinese. And our assumption that to uh, modernize and to join the global economy results in a Westernization or, or more egotistically an Americanization, and that if it doesn't, that uh, reflects some sort of uh, naivete on our part or worse some betrayal by uh, a certain argument or a certain desire among our leadership to encourage China's rise, I think is, is kind of fantastic. We don't have that kind of control over China. And they're stepping in to a position of superpowerdom, let's say, uh, where they want to control their own future. They're not interested in slotting themselves in obediently under our uh, stewardship of the global economy. They want to uh, set the rules of the next iteration of globalization as much or more than America does. And they're doing a pretty good job of it, I would argue. So, um, you know, what we need them to become uh, is not really uh, anything other than what they're attempting to do, which is to further extend uh, globalization's networks. They're doing that, I would argue, with a certain ability on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, do we have to uh, balance against whatever nationalism or uh, aggression, they are kind of naturally picking up in their rise. Great powers that rise to superpower status tend to be a little belligerent. Uh, uh, yeah, we have to. But I, I really see their challenge to us less in terms of, of military means or authoritarianism as much as their aggressive uh, pursuit of network centrality in the global economy as globalization progressively digitalizes across this decade and the next couple. And along those lines, that's where I see the real threat uh, to American preeminence or ability to steer global events is that we're not playing or trying to make the same efforts uh, at connecting up the global South that China is. And on that basis, uh, we're losing out on uh, vast uh, market share opportunities with that global middle class that's going to drive consumption and economic growth across the 21st century. So let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, this is a point uh, that you make, that these are dueling narratives. Uh, the Chinese are doing stuff that uh, we did, right? I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is a little reminiscent to the Marshall Plan in terms of, you know, make that investment. I mean, we can say that the terms they're doing it in uh, are, are not the same as the terms we used in the Marshall Plan, uh, no. but it is to be able to create that broader uh, market, uh, a, a broader community. What, it, what, is, what is it the United States, Thomas, has to be doing now to more successfully compete? Because in each and every single one of these places, you know, every few years we have a reset, you know, we're going to focus on Latin America. We don't focus on Latin America. We're going to focus now uh, on Africa. We don't focus on Africa. Whereas we're getting frustrated that they are. What is the approach we need for a long-term strategic competition that we are in where we will, you know, work together, we will work against one another, but what's the approach the United States needs that is less a hysterical approach, but actually more of a strategic long-term competitive approach? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's one that movement from market maker to market player mindset that I described earlier and, and doing so without any sort of, uh, self-doubt or self-recrimination or this notion that that we were lied to and that globalization has been this this huge monster that's destroyed us uh, so being more realistic about how we set up this world and how we need to adjust to the competitive landscape that we've 
set in motion. Second, it would be kind of to back off our top-down definition of security. Uh, we have a tendency to spot dangers in the world and then to come in and to kind of take out those bad actors. We're very interventionary focus. Uh, we have a showdown focus. Uh, you know, we kind of look at the world in terms of poker, you know, uh, uh, some crisis uh, uh, presents itself to us. And then it's a question about how far we're going to go up the escalation ladder, how big our bets are going to be, like with the Russians uh, in Ukraine right now, or the scenario that we uh, present ourselves constantly uh, with China on Taiwan. So we have a tendency to play the players in the system, and we don't play the board. The Chinese are very different, not top-down, very bottom-up. They look at the global board uh, like the ancient Chinese game of Go, and they are laying down stones across the world right now, building networks, building uh, safe zones that they feel that they can operate within. And our focus on these kind of summit-like political military crisis points, uh, Ukraine, uh, Taiwan, now we got Israel and Hamas, and our tendency to become so distracted by that means we're not paying attention to that kind of slow, methodical connectivity building that China is exerting across the world on the Belt and Road Initiative, which we love to criticize. There, there's plenty to criticize about it, but it is succeeding in connecting China very deliberately to parts of the world that we tend to ignore as market opportunities, or we tend to treat primarily with sticks in terms of sanctions. Um, you know, we have our very defined view of the world. You're either a defense partner of the United States, which is the West as we define it, or you're the part of the world that we sanction because we're disappointed in your behavior. And that's really the vast majority of the global South. Uh, so when China comes in and says, hey, you know, we're not here to sanction. We're not here to lecture. We're not here to make reform demands. We're just here to connect you up to the global economy with infrastructure. And oh, by the way, we're happy to offer you 5G network connectivity along with uh, social surveillance technologies that you might find useful. And we definitely find useful in terms right. of penetrating your society and, and modeling our definition of freedom and security and stability in such a way that, you know, they're arguing that the, the, the source of where that comes from, autocracy versus democracy, is irrelevant, that their version of connectivity, their version of, of future uh, stability and economic integration is actually better than what right. the U.S. offers, because the West in general, and the U.S. in particular, is so erratic uh, always making demands, always telling you how you got to change, and always being disappointed that you haven't Americanized yourself enough. Whereas the Chinese come in, lay it down. Yes, are they going to put you in a bind uh, debt-wise over, over time? Sure. A lot of Western development uh, puts you in a bind in terms of debt crises throughout history as well. So how much worse can it be coming from the Chinese when it looks like American, particular in the Western general, are just self-immolating right now over all sorts of internal culture wars. Um, so about the uh, competition, right? I mean, you make the case the United States has enormous advantages over China, right? I mean, you you use a, you know, it's almost a bullet paragraph, you know, it's it's a chapter that's just, but um, but um, but um, it's like it's like a hundred advantages we have. How? What are those advantages? How should we be playing those advantages? And what are the lessons, uh, Thomas, from our own history that can help shape what the next phase of this looks like? The emergence of a global majority middle class kind of reruns what happened in the West at the turn of the 20th century when our middle class arose. You know, in Europe, you got the responses of rule, attempted rule by the left, uh, communism, socialism, Bolshevism, and you got attempted rule from the right, fascism, Nazism. And that led to two, you know, in effect, two world wars and a cold war, a lot of death, a lot of uh, bloodiness, a lot of conflict over how to handle the emergence of that middle class in Europe. We did much better in the West, uh, the true West, the United States. Uh, we threaded that choice, uh, is it going to be rule from the left or the right? And we instead made it 
the center gets to rule itself. The middle class gets to rule itself. That's what we're trying to do on a global scale now as the majority global middle class comes into its own. You know, the global middle class was about 2 billion back in 2000. It's about 4 billion now. It's going to be 6 to 7 billion uh, by mid-century. We're seeing the same conflict emerge over who's going to make that global middle class feel secure. And my argument is, uh, you know, we have the best brand out there in terms of integration and a middle-centric political system, even as we denigrate it and, and, and damage it right now. If we remember how we integrated ourselves over time, I would like to see us get back in the business of being open for new membership. And to use that as a trump card in our relationship and in our competition with the Chinese. Because what China offers you is inclusion, you, the global South. It offers you inclusion in their global value chains, but it doesn't offer you membership in a larger Chinese dream. Whereas the Americans do have that capacity, uh, we have the capacity to admit new members, just like the EU has done uh, very dramatically over the past 30 years. Uh, we've just forgotten that attribute. And I use the example in the book of, of, of free agency in sports. You know, imagine a world in which countries could sign with whatever franchise they wanted to, whatever major franchise, like a player who's had his contract uh, expire and wants to sign with a new team in, in a major sport. Uh, if we had that kind of free agency capacity available in the system today, you know, America would be inundated with requests to join our union. China would not be. India would not be. Russia, sirs, hell would not be. The EU would be inundated with all sorts of requests. So if you look at it from that kind of perspective and see this emergence of a global middle class as sort of the great opportunity to steer the political and economic development of the world this century, then I think we have to start thinking in terms of the soft power brand appeal that we have. You know, we can't compete with the Chinese on investment right now. They're the big saver in the system for the past 30 years. They got the global currency reserves to make it happen. We don't. Uh, but we can compete with them on our brand attraction so that when Russia and China come in and offer their versions of social control technologies, uh, we're offering a different path, something that allows countries to seek pooled sovereignty like the EU offers uh, that we haven't been offering for quite some time now, uh, and allows them to project themselves into a more stable, expanding uh, union anchored by a superpower that they like, as opposed to one that they uh, mistrust and fear in the form of the Russians or the Chinese. Um, you uh, note, uh, right, I mean, and, and you just mentioned that the EU is a, is a great example, and obviously it was in the wake of World War II uh, and a way to integrate Europe to prevent another war. I think people have a tendency, the critics of the EU don't understand it is a security construct uh, to, to economically integrate everybody to the point where an, another devastating war is impossible. The United States right. took a different approach, and, you know, you make the case that you're going to be the first Barnett who is born and dies under the same 50 star flag. Uh, right. Sure. What does an American union look like? Because the, you, you, you talk about how much easier it is for us to create our own States, but what would, but Americans have a tendency of looking askance at those unions. We're happy to have Canada as long as it stays on its side of the border. We're happy to have Mexico as long as it stays on its side of the border. What, what does this American, right, continental north-south union, because from your seeing it, it could start at the Arctic and go to the Antarctic? Sure. You know, America was a system built on state accession for the first 17 decades of our experience. But what really slowed our our, our, our growth along those lines and our ambitions and our openness to this concept were the, were the world-spanning burden, political military burden that we undertook after the Second World War. We're going to save Europe. We're going to save Asia from the communist threat. Over time, we're going to save the Middle East from a similar sort of sphere of influence extension by the Russians, the Soviets, you know, the Carter Doctrine. Uh, back in the late 1970s. 
you know, so we we're basically trying to to assume a responsibility for uh, steering the entire Eurasian, the vast Eurasian continent's development over time, where today we find four superpowers, you know, the EU, the Russians, the Chinese, and increasingly the Indians. And, and, and this notion that we're going to be the integrator of note across Europe and Asia this century, I think is just a folly. I mean, we were successful in creating multipolarity. And on that basis, we have to accept that the future of that vast Eurasian continent is going to be subject to those four superpowers and not us. Okay, so when you when you step back from that kind of market making responsibility that we had and successfully pursued for quite some time and start thinking about, hey, in this new competitive landscape, if we're looking out for ourselves more and more, where should we concentrate our efforts at integration? And I would argue it makes perfect sense to focus on the Western Hemisphere because that's where we're going to feel a lot of pressures in terms of immigration driven by um, uh, uh, climate migrants fleeing the lower latitudes, as we already see across the Northern Triangle countries, where there's been a mega drought for quite some time. And we're starting to see across the, the Andean portion of South America, where we're starting to pick up uh, all sorts of refugee flows that I would argue are, uh, if we are honest with ourselves, driven more by climate pressures than by anything else. Right. So if we have that imp impetus to kind of look out for ourselves now that we've achieved this more competitive landscape, then I think once you get back away from that sense of we got to run the world all the time, then it becomes easier to think about kind of opening our system back up to the way we used to run it before we got involved in trying to run the world. And that is uh, an openness towards new membership because we had new members all the way through just before I was born in 1962. And then we flatlined ever since. When you look at the future of what we're gonna expect in this hemisphere, this century, there's nothing about what we're talking about with climate change, for example, that suggests that a Honduras or an El Salvador, a lot of these smaller countries are better off going it alone. A lot of them are gonna get wiped out by this process. They're gonna experience such economic unlivability that eventually there'll be political unfeasibility and we'll be looking at failed states to our south driving you know vastly larger flows of migrants headed in our direction so we could deal with that try to put up a big wall shoot them at the border like we're starting to see across europe across the middle east in very frightening terms you know a very xenophobic sort of response and we're seeing that more and more in our own political system where presidential candidates are, are stepping over each other to declare how much more willing they'd be to launch military strikes against Mexico, if you can believe it. I mean, we're heading down some very dangerous pathways to the point where I would, I'd much prefer, and I think it's, it's, it's gonna be much more amenable to upcoming generations, the millennials, the Gen Zs. I just don't see them willing to wage cold wars around the planet. I don't see them willing to shoot them at the border like our uh, political mindset and 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 anger and xenophobia are, are driving that sort of dialogue you know the otherization of latinos to such an absurd degree instead i see them being much more open to socializing the sort of risk that these lower latitude countries are going to suffer uh, thanks to climate change and i think when you're looking ahead to a u.s electorate that quite frankly, mid-century is going to be non-white majority and is going to have one out of three voters uh, with a Latino background, uh, ethnic background. I right. think there are big opportunities for us to um, accept smaller state membership throughout the region. I'm not talking about annexing Mexico or annexing uh, Canada or annexing Brazil, but there are a lot of other countries that would be better off uh, socializing their risk in a larger union right. and we're the best hope they have in the Western hemisphere. And if we don't, then I would argue they're going to be uh, swept up in China's network activities and their uh, uh, economic integration activities, because, you know, they've been very aggressive with Belt and Road across Latin America. And we're going to be looking at the Chinese 
you know, providing border security for the Mexicans here at some point in the future, if we're not careful. Um, this union of the Americas uh, is something that uh, throughout history, you know, has been discussed, has been thought of, you know, whether it's an organization of American uh, states and it's never fully materialized, uh, unfortunately, although I take your demographic point uh, of us sort of getting there uh, eventually because of cultural reasons, right? I mean, we're, we're going to be a majority, uh, you know, whites will be a majority minority uh, in the United States in a couple of years. I, I want to get to that in, in, a, in a moment, but I want to ask you um, about uh, deterring China, right? I mean, even though we are, uh, our relative influence in, uh, around the world has uh, diminished, the United States and its ability to create allies and partnerships have really tremendously steered security uh, outcomes, you know, whether it was the Cold War, whether it was peace and stability in the Asia Pacific, uh, allies and partners are, are, are beating a path to our door across the region. Uh, even, uh, you know, Thomas in, uh, you know, Micronesia, where it looked like China was making gains. And some of those very nations have decided, hey, as long as, you know, America pays a little attention to us, you know, so we still have a lot of influence. And sure. China, at the end of the day, is still an authoritarian regime. And the one thing we know about authoritarian regimes is their ability to miscalculate. From, from your standpoint, what is the best way for the United States to help convince Beijing not to miscalculate on Taiwan? I mean, there are concerns that are preoccupation with Ukraine and now with Israel's uh, latest Hamas war would be an ideal opportunity for China to do something on Taiwan, you know, decide, hey, let me rip the Band-Aid off. What are the, the things the United States can do and should do? Because we have influence, we are a Pacific power, we will remain a Pacific power, even if we're not potentially, you know, our margin of power over other powers isn't as great. What's, what's the way to make sure that we can try to help shape China uh, and avoid it making a miscalculation that it will regret, which is something a Japanese diplomat friend of mine once told me about, you know, World War II. Well, I think, you know, Taiwan is a specific problem. It's, it's, a, it's a remnant from the Cold War, you know, much like Ukraine and the question of Russian dominance is a remnant, much like Israel versus Palestine. I mean, these are all remnants of a, Cold War order that we're still dealing with. Okay. And so for me, they're not the future, they're the past. And we definitely don't want to get sucked back into these kinds of conflicts. So we have to deal with them, but they're not the future of our relationship with China or the future of uh, global structures in any real sense. I mean, if Taiwan wanted to voluntarily join China, it would make very little difference in the world. The same would be true if, if Ukraine voluntarily wanted to join with Russia like Belarus did back, I think, in the early 1990s with the Union of Belarus and Russia. These kinds of choices, if they were made voluntarily, would represent uh, our losses in terms of brand appeal, but they wouldn't represent big geopolitical losses. Uh, it's the desire to avoid this uh, example where you can try to prevent defections from within your sphere of influence to another brand, let's say, you know, an alternative structure, uh, allegiance to the West, allegiance to the United States, that sort of thing, uh, by violent means. And, you know, what do we have to do to prevent China from doing that? We have to keep the risk of failure high enough on Taiwan that they're unwilling to roll that dice. Uh, we have a tendency to think that when they're rising, they're going to be more desirous of attacking Taiwan. Then we said when they peaked that they were going to be more desirous of attacking Taiwan. And then as they start to slow down or stagnate economically, right. now we're saying they're more incentivized to attack Taiwan. I think the history of China says that when they have internal economic problems, they tend to be careful uh, overseas, right. more careful than not. I believe the fact that the Russians experienced a lot of difficulty in Ukraine and found themselves at the end, the receiving end of a deglobalizing strategy by the United States, I think is a powerful example. I think our willingness to go back to that arsenal of democracy sort of approach, which we're now gearing back up 
with regard to the Israelis. I think that's a good choice. I think we can do that ad nauseum. It's it, right. uh, it, uh, very reminiscent of the Reagan doctrine approach. You know, just back the little guy against the big guy. You don't have to get involved. Funnel lots right. of weapons. Let them do the fighting and and let other powers experience imperial overreach. So the porcupine strategy, as they call it, with Taiwan, I think is a perfectly fine one. I think selling lots of arms to the region's uh, uh, other powers and maintaining strong military relations there, I think these are all big enough hedges against this problem set. Uh, and instead, I don't want to get us all wrapped around kind of trying to contain China in a larger sense, because I think that's illogical given what China has become as an economic pillar within the global economy. We need them to further extend globalization to other powers that they uh, integrate into their global value chains as they move up the production ladder from low end manufacturing to higher end manufacturing and technology and, and, and intellectual property. We want to see them move up that ladder, even as that success does represent a challenge to this notion that uh, democracies are better for long-term economic growth and stability. And that's what I think is the real challenge that, that China represents for us with regard to that global middle class, is they're trying to commoditize the provision of security, stability, and prosperity saying in effect, whether you get it from us or whether you get it from the democratic West, it really doesn't matter. Uh, we're both offering you basically the same package. And if we're less troublesome and less demanding than the West, then why not go with us? I think that's a scary outcome for us over time because it's gonna shut us out of accessing that global middle class over time. And that's where the real growth and economic opportunity is gonna be. Because to me, uh, citizenship, subscription, uh, network, uh, belonging, all those kinds of things are kind of merging in today's uh, digitalized globalization. And we could find ourselves with surprisingly little influence over the system. If we insist on having this very militarized approach to kind of steering global developments, while China is very much focused on that economic integration approach, which I think is is more appropriate for where we are in history, and is actually bringing them more success than we care to admit. Your notion, though, is a little bit controversial for some that effectively the world devolves basically into three unions, right? An American union uh, on this continental mass, uh, a European union, and then sort of an in yeah. Indo-Pacific uh, union. Right. Um, is, is that potentially problematic? Uh, because that's kind of the argument, isn't that sort of the argument that Beijing and uh, Moscow are making that, uh, well, I mean, there is a natural order to these things. They are spheres of influence. And I'll stay out of your sphere of influence as long as you stay out of my sphere of influence. Well, I mean, there's the economic logic of these three great demand manufacturing hubs. And India's rise may alter that. I mean, India may ultimately become the center of that Asian demand manufacturing hub more so than China. And I think there are good arguments to be made for that. Um, with regard to Africa, the Middle East, you know, there again, it's my argument is, do you think we're going to out-integrate the local players there? Uh, uh, do you think we're going to be more important to the Middle East than, than China and India, which are, you know, the vast drawers of energy from that part of the world? Do you think we can manage Russia more effectively or comprehensively than the EU is being forced to do so now as a result of Russia's incursion into Ukraine? I don't think so. Do you think we're going to be the major integrator of sub-Saharan Africa in the future? You know, I'd give Europe a better path along those lines. I'd give the Chinese and the Indians, based on their uh, uh, presence there, uh, long-term and, and growing presence in terms of finance. And then, you know, I don't underestimate the capacity of the Persian Gulf monarchies to be great integrators of note throughout the Mediterranean, throughout North Africa, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, or even South Asia to that extent. Right. So when I look around the world and say, you know, where do I think the U.S. can really outperform? It's in our neighborhood. Now, does that sound like we're surrendering the world? Well, it does mean, like I've said throughout, that we're backing away from that kind of global market making role and re-embracing a more competitive role. 
And and if we do that, then I think we got to start in our own neighborhood. We got to deal with the the threats and challenges that are going to emerge from climate change in our neck of the woods. And if we are successful in modeling kind of a future north-south integration where the US brand is dynamic and open and integrating, then I think we can compete much better in other parts of the world. But I don't see us trying to stop, you know, right. China and India and and manage the EU's rise, for example, or just manage the vast Eurasian integration scheme uh, better than those local superpowers. Um, and with the kind of aversion we have to overseas interventions and responsibilities right now, and with the racial makeover of the United States creating such immense political polarization, I see us fixing ourselves by focusing on Western hemispheric integration in a way that no other pathway forward allows us to pursue. What are the lessons from the Ukraine war and the entire Hamas episode that you think are most that we have to bear in mind as we look into the future? Well, I think they're two very different situations. I think what the Ukraine intervention by Russia signals is the soft power brand appeal of the European Union, that the Russians are so scared of defections from very close historical partners, let's say, uh, or assets as they view Ukraine, you know, part of their deep cultural heritage that given the opportunity to choose freely between the European Union and whatever the heck Russia is attempting to build right now, which looks suspiciously like a resurrection of the Russian empire, there was no right. question Ukraine wanted to go West. And that brand appeal is so frightening to the Russians and to Putin in particular, that he's willing to go to war to prevent it. I mean, I could make the same argument and I, I have in the past, you know, what if you offered Taiwan the chance to be the 51st state in the United States? I mean, would they take it over union with China? My guess is they would. Would Russia, Would China at that point consider that such a scary prospect that they probably launch an invasion of Taiwan to prevent it? I also think that would be true. Okay, so I, I think you have to look at what are the primary assets that we have. You know, we have a military that can go anywhere and do anything in the world. That's a valuable thing. I don't argue for getting rid of it. But the other great asset we have is the brand appeal. And I think we start a, need to start wielding that power in a way that signals, uh, you know, there are options to submitting to this kind of forced integration. And I'd like to see countries across the world be able to play that card against the Chinese. I think we're seeing an early version of that, you know, like with the Solomons and those various island archipelagos in the in the Western Pacific. You know, the, the, the Chinese moved in, so to speak, with that deal they cut with the Solomons. And you know, we're trying to respond. That's kind of a very micro version of what I'm talking about. But, I, you know, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for us to engage China in a way that's very disadvantageous to them and very advantageous to us. With Hamas uh, and Israel, you know, I, I think that's such a specific situation. It's basically civil war between, uh, you know, a territory that's never been granted full state status. Right. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a disaster. I don't know what they do other than, you know, if they really want to solve this security issue going forward. It's basically liquidating Gaza as, as an independent entity or a quasi-independent entity. And I, I think that would be a very scary and frightening path, but I think it's it's one that I don't see how they avoid it uh, because I don't think there's any way to kind of cleanse Gaza, return it to Palestinian rule, and then hope for a better outcome, you know, five or 10 years down the road. I think Gaza has proven itself to be incompatible with Israel's identity and future. And I think uh, there are very harsh choices to be made going forward by the Israelis. But I think they're ready to make them, to be honest. Let me, uh, we have less uh, than a minute left. Let me ask you about that domestic demographic uh, uh, challenge uh, that we uh, have. You make an argument that we're getting 
uh, nostalgic. We're looking backward instead of looking forward, which has been the key to U.S. Uh, success. How do you fight this populist pining for a past that really wasn't as good as some people would like to make it out to be? And it certainly wasn't as universally good, especially if you were a minority, for example. Right. I mean, America emerged from the Second World War demographically unharmed, let's say, relative to the rest, and industrially super empowered. So we had this golden period, and we refer to it as a golden age in the 1950s and 1960s, when we could dominate the global economy very effortlessly. And that allowed us to have a model of economic advance where you just needed a high school degree and you could go into manufacturing and you could have a great middle-class life. That was unsustainable. We weren't going to be able to hold on to that predominance without, you know, kind of enforcing a lack of development on the rest of the world. We chose not to do so. Instead, we encouraged the rest of the world to rise. And now we have a more competitive landscape. So can we go back to that golden 1950s and 1960s? No, we can't. It's not possible. We've also allowed through immigration uh, the basic racial makeover of our country in a very profound way. I think it's to our extreme advantage in terms of the role of immigrants empowering our economy. And I think if we're looking at a future world of, of North-South integration, the fact that we've been much more willing to admit non-whites into our system over time actually empowers us and gives us the capacity to open up to southward integration in a way that it's much harder for a Christian-dominated, white-defined Europe or an India or a China which have their own uh, racist qualities, I would argue, in terms of a sense of, of racial superiority vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the other civilizations they interact with around the world. I think the future of integration in terms of a superpower competition is inherently north-south this century. And that, quite frankly, to put it very bluntly, the least racist superpower wins. And I think the fact that America is undergoing this a tremendous uh, racial makeover where whites in the course of basically my lifetime have gone from like 90% will go down to about 45% mid-century, I think actually empowers us and prepares us and forces us to adapt internally in such a way that we'll be better positioned to compete in terms of this kind of North-South integration across the century. Thomas, Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, uh, fascinating uh, conversation. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately we don't. Uh, thanks so very much and look forward to welcoming you on the program again because there's so much more to discuss. Thank you.